0: I'll never forget my, uh, my first experience of the Australian coastline. Um, I'd just gone there for seminary, just flew in. It was, uh, I believe, the beginning of January. Came out of the airport with this blinding sun and this hot wind. And uh, after I'd come from the Chicago winter, I couldn't believe it. And as soon as I got settled in, the first thing I did was I caught a, a bus to the beach. I wanted to get to the beach. And uh, I remember... Got off the bus, and there was a bit of a ridge, and I came up over this ridge to look down over Bondi Beach in Sydney, and it was just beautiful, the incredibly clear water, and couldn't believe I was there. And there was a lady standing there, and uh, I asked her if she would take, take my picture. This is before the, when you actually had a camera, not a phone, right? And I handed it to her, and she took this picture, and we began to talk and walk along the coastline. There's a path all along the coastline. And uh, she's the first stranger I met in Australia and we're just walking along, had a very interesting conversation and she asked me why I was there, why I was in Australia and I began to explain that I'd come there to go to seminary and, and she was looking at me kind of odd and, and uh, she finally said, you're not one of those born again people, are you? And uh, I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. And uh, we had a very interesting conversation. But I remember thinking, I wonder what she thinks she means by that. And uh, trying to figure that out. I knew it wasn't positive by the look on her face. You know, the thing about that phrase is it can mean just about anything today. Because it's been so used and, and tossed around. This wonderful phrase that Jesus coined... Born again has been kind of lost. Every other president since Jimmy Carter has claimed to be a born-again Christian. Movie stars and rock stars claim this experience, despite maybe lifestyles that seem very contrary, born again. It's a general term for any change in a person's life, really, right? Right? Um, you know, the, a, a pop star has a, a restyling of their career, and it's born-again Brittany. You know, whether she's just come out of rehab or a new album, born-again. And it doesn't have to even be a, a phrase about a person, right? Things can be born-again in our culture. I remember Toyota had a whole ad campaign for their born-again, their new line of cars. And I uh, remember when I came here, Pacific Northwest Magazine had on the front of it uh, it was all about remodeling houses. It said "Born Again Bungalows." The, bra- the phrase has been completely kind of pirated and uh, and robbed of any real meaning. It can mean, like I said, anything or, or kind of nothing. And this morning we have a chance, I think, to to kind of rescue it and and return it to its proper place, which is John chapter three. This is where we, we can trace this phrase back to the, the lips of Jesus right here in John chapter 3. It's his p- proper place. Here we can see it in its original, historical, grammatical, literary, theological context. Come to a real understanding of what it means to be born again. And if you think you know already, uh, you might, and this can be a reminder. But I have a feeling that you might learn something a little bit new about it as you look at it here. So let us read the first Three verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. The kingdom of God. So here we're introduced to this character named Nicodemus. The core of this chapter revolves around this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we're just going to kind of work our way through it. But before we do, I want us to, uh, to note a few things about Nicodemus. First of all, we're told that he is a Pharisee. Uh, that is a, uh, if you don't know what that phrase is, that's a very, very religious person. Uh, he is a man of impeccable behavior. They were respected, the Pharisees, for their high ethical standards. He would go out of his way to keep every aspect of the Jewish law, in, including beyond it. They would, uh, here's a couple things that the Pharisees would do to make sure they kept the law On on the Sabbath, they would not carry any more uh, weight of food than a dried fig would weigh so that they wouldn't do work. They would have no Gentiles stay in their home. They even tried to stay downwind from them, not to be contaminated. They were very, very serious religious men and very respected. It also tells us here that he is a member of the Jewish ruling council, That's why he's called a ruler of Israel, ruler of the Jews. He's a member of that ruling council. That's 70 men who have jurisdiction over every Jew on earth. He's high in status and power. He is up there. They are the intelligentsia of Judaism. And he's tops among them. Do you notice in verse 10 in our reading what Jesus said? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? I mean he is a teacher amongst teachers, the top, even amongst the Sanhedrin. And note that he is a we. Did you know that? Notice that in verse two? Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher from God. He's coming as a, a representative of the ruling electoral, uh, intellectual elite. He speaks for the Sanhedrin. He's a, a ruler of rulers, a teacher of teachers. He represents the whole old, in a sense, uh, old guard, the, the establishment of Jewish religion. But we also need to note one more thing about him. And that is, he is not spiritually trustworthy you probably didn't notice that in the text because it actually comes before our text this is where paragraph headings that are not in the original that are put in here are not very helpful because they make us miss the connection so look back at 2 verse 23 and let's read through the flow 2 verse 23 just before our text now when he was in jerusalem that's jesus when he was in jerusalem at the feast of pass at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs the miracles that he was doing But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus, when you see him in the context, is the first example of people who are attracted by Jesus' miracles. He even came and says that, right? We've seen the signs you've done, Jesus. He's attracted. But Jesus doesn't trust him because he knows his heart. The leader of the intellectual ruling elite, although a very religious man, is actually a skeptical unbeliever. He's a good man. He's a religious man. He's a seemingly sincere seeker. Note that it says that he comes at night. He comes to try to get away from his crowd, to, to talk to Jesus. at seemingly kind of in private. Like he's really seeking. But actually, Jesus knows he has a closed heart. There's something about him that just can't go there. He knows, he, you know, Jesus is, is a godly, good teacher. He knows he can do miracles, but Son of God, Messiah, no. Nicodemus is an educated man. He, he's not going to buy that. You know anybody like this today? Intelligent, religious, supposedly pretty open. But when it comes to Jesus, there is a wall. When it comes to Christianity, they're not going there. So here we have Nicodemus standing before Jesus, and Jesus sizes him up in an instant and simply says to him, it's amazing what Jesus says to this guy. The first words to this religious elite person, he just says to him, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I'm going to speak the truth to you right now, that's what he's saying, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love that he just says that straight out to Nicodemus must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Now, two things to note here. First of all, kingdom of God is a reference to the place of God's eternal reign. The kingdom at the end of the age, ultimately. What we would call heaven. The place of eternal resurrection life where God reigns. And secondly, note the phrase, note the word one in this text. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say, unless one is born again. It's the inclusive anyone. This is why we need to get the phrase born again right, because it's the prerequisite for heaven, for everyone, for anyone. To enter the kingdom of God, to go to heaven, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus, being the intellect that he is, has a bit of a problem with this, and he responds in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, this response from Nicodemus is, is not because he's kind of slow and he doesn't understand that Jesus is speaking symbolically, but because... What Jesus is saying, even in the symbolism, simply doesn't make any sense to him. I mean, he is a Jew, a child of God. Of course he's going to enter the kingdom of God that God will bring at the end of history. That's what all the Jews were looking forward to. And as far as the idea of being born again, he, he sees what Jesus is basically saying, by way of analogy, that the rabbis actually had a saying about proselytes, those who embraced Judaism, Gentiles who embraced Judaism, said they needed to be reborn. So he understands, as much as anybody in our culture does, this idea that encapsulates a thorough change of behavior. But he is a Jew amongst Jews, a Pharisee, the teacher of Israel. What is, for, what is there for him to change? He, he's as good as it gets. What is he supposed to do? I Go back in his mother's womb and be born again? That's what he's saying. Why should he? He was already born a Jew, and he's a great one. So Jesus, sensing that Nicodemus is not sincerely inquiring as to the mechanics of this process, you know, so as to actually want to be born again, but rather doubting the necessity for himself at all, responds by just restating himself. Look at verse 6. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, let me state the truth again to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's here that we start to get some definition of what he means by born again, because Jesus paralyzed the idea, right? He, he paralyzes the idea of being born again with being born of water and the Spirit. It's the same thing. This is what you need to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have tried to explain this phrase of water and Spirit by saying, oh, he must re- be referring to, like, physical birth, water, and then spiritual birth, born of the Spirit, Has some some idea of ring of truth to it, but I don't think it's quite right. Some have said, well, no, it's water is is the water of baptism, and then there's the spirit baptism. That fits nicely if you have a strong baptistic theology. But both these ideas are missing the mark a little bit. I think what we have here are two cleansing images melded together with the idea of birth. To, to express one ultimate cleansing event of the heart. And there's volumes written on this, but there's three things I want to point out that would lend towards this understanding, that being born again is a cleansing event. First of all, the grammar. the Greek, uh, in, in Greek, the preposition of, being born of, governs both the terms water and spirit it's not born of water and of spirit it's born of water spirit Uh, D.A. Carson puts it this born of spiritual water now keep that image in mind be born of spiritual water and then remember the Old Testament that's the other factor the background that Nicodemus should have had as a teacher of Israel in fact in in verse 7 Jesus says do not marvel that I said to you you must be born again he's like don't you know this? Because he knows he's a teacher of Israel. He would know his Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Jews weren't assumed to be clean. In Deuteronomy 36, the Lord said that all their hearts, he would have to circumcise their hearts to make them clean. The prophets pick up on this idea and this hope of a new heart and renewal, and they express it. Ezekiel 36, this is why I had that section read. It's a great section if you read it all in its context, but let me just read this chapter ezekiel 36 chapter 24 verse 24 i will take you from the nations i will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols i will cleanse you and i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you cleansing water The Spirit's action, a brand new heart, it's all right there. Nicodemus, being a teacher of the Old Testament, should understand this need to be born again, to have his heart radically cleansed by the Spirit of God, made completely new. So we see the grammar, we see the Old Testament background, and finally we see the immediate context. If you've been with us for this series we just had the wedding of, wedding of Cana story where the purification jars are filled to the full by the wine of the new age that Jesus brings. So he cleanses. Then we go, he goes into the temple and what does he do? He cleanses the temple. It's a theme. And now Jesus is saying to the best Israelite there ever was that such a radical cleansing must come to his heart to everyone's heart if they want to enter the kingdom of God you must be born again completely cleansed this kind of means that that the gig is up for Nicodemus doesn't it his religious status a Jew a teacher of Israel's uh, Israel a member of the Sanhedrin doesn't matter All the religious sacrifices and rituals and keeping the law is is useless. Jesus says to it in verse 6, Hey, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. He says, look, you're a fleshly man. You can't do anything about your spiritual condition. Even with his excellent religious heritage and his Intellect and his upper crust education and his extreme moral and ethical efforts, it's all useless. And it's the same today. It doesn't matter what family you have been raised in. It doesn't matter what church, Catholic, Christian, Baptist, Jewish, Mormon, Islamic, all their ethical standards. It doesn't matter what behavior you've had. It doesn't matter what rituals have been performed upon you whether sprinkled or immersed or second blessing you name it you need your heart radically cleansed by God's spirit we all need complete divine cleansing of our fairy souls to enter the kingdom of God and that's just the first question is has that happened have you been born again and it's a process, if you notice, that's kind of out of your control, out of my control, out of our control. I, we, we don't do it out of ourselves. It happens to us. Look at, look at 7 and 8 again. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or so where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We have no control. You must be born again by a mysterious work of God's Spirit. It's a mystery, this rebirthing. Like the wind. You can't see it. You just see its effects. It's kind of frustrating if you think about it. Can't do it in our own efforts. Can't make it happen. Can't figure it out with our minds, as Nicodemus is saying here. I don't understand. I don't get it makes you feel kind of helpless. And you can sense Nicodemus' frustration when you get to verse 9 because he just repeats this question. He says, "Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can this be? I don't get it." That's what he's saying. How can you be born again? And and why? How does this happen? And it's in Jesus' response, his kind of final response, Where he does eventually kind of answer his question here. But in it, we see the core problem. We see why it needs to be this way. So look at verse 9 as Jesus answers him. Let's read from 9 to 13. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's the truth. We... Notice how he picks up on Nicodemus' we when Nicodemus came and said, We know, look what Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying to Nicodemus, your problem isn't your intellect, is it? It's not that you can't figure out this rebirth thing and and thus, you know, you can't believe I've had a couple of friends that have kind of made that claim of like, I just don't understand. I can't believe Christianity because I just don't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, so I can't believe. I've got to understand it fully first to believe it, which just isn't true. We believe in a lot of things we don't understand, like electricity, you know. Nobody really understands electricity, by the way. There's no doubt that it's a divine mystery what's going on in the born-again work, but that is not the problem. That is not what is stopping him from being born-again, from being cleansed, from experiencing what Jesus is talking about. What is it? What's the problem? It's his will. It's his rebellious will. It's his hard heart. Here he has God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Here he has God's son before him, having come from the very throne room of God. That's why Jesus is saying, it's only the one who's ascended that's been there and seen God. That's me. He speaks, Jesus speaks of what he knows, what he has seen. He's a direct witness from God, truth incarnate. And Nicodemus has heard his teaching, his divine words. He's seen his miracles. Yet he won't accept his testimony. He won't accept it. You see, all along, Nicodemus has kind of presented himself as this honest seeker. One who really wants to know. He's just stuck because he just doesn't get it. But that isn't true. He's stuck because he's just flat out rejected God. He must be born again, have his heart completely cleansed because he has a stubborn, rebellious heart that won't believe. It doesn't matter if all the evidence is before him. It doesn't matter if God himself stands before him and speaks to him and does miracles. He won't believe. He must be born again. By God's Spirit, from the outside, doing his work. He rejects the truth that stands right in front of him. He needs to be born again. And of course, this is not just Nicodemus. He's just the extreme example. Because he's such a great man, at least religiously. What's being said about Nicodemus is universal. Look at verse 19. Just on the other side of the, 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 the God so loved the world, verse, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus, the one who's descended from God, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People reject the light, the truth, because their works were evil. Paul says in Romans three, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. See the most amazing thing about John three sixteen, that wonderful verse at the center of our text that tells us that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life is that it's prefaced with a story about an extremely devout man who won't believe despite God standing right in front of him and it's followed by a statement saying that nobody believes because we're evil which according to verse 18 means we're all condemned and I want to park on this for a minute People need to be born again, completely cleansed by God because they have evil, rebellious hearts that refuse to believe. And and here's the application for us. Here's, Here's a question for us. Do we believe this? Do I believe this as I relate to this world? That they're in complete rejection. They need to be born again. Do, do I believe, as I relate to to, 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 her, to my neighbor, do, do I believe this is the real problem? That it's not what they think it is. It's not really that they have some intellectual hang-up. His or her problem is not, well, you know, the Bible just doesn't square with science. I just don't get it, so I can't believe Or, well, the the Bible is is just a culturally bound text. It's a lot of patriarchal stuff. I I just can't get past that. I can't believe. The problem is not this is an ancient text, and I'm sure in its transmission we don't really have the original, so I can't. It's not any of that. That's just red herrings thrown out there in defense of a rebellious heart. That's just Nicodemus standing in front of Jesus God himself and saying, you know, our problem is I just don't get it. I don't understand. No. I have to constantly remind myself of this so that I remember, one, to stop trying to argue people into the kingdom. You can't do it. One of my teachers used to say, a mind convinced against its will is of the same opinion still there's a will involved i need to stop arguing and pray more because they need to be born again they need divine intervention they need god to act upon them by his spirit look at the end of our text verse 21 it says but whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be, oh, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. How does he come to the light? God brings It Should keep us in prayer. But you know, the story doesn't end here, there's a challenge. A challenge that comes as Jesus finally gets around to answering Nicodemus' question as to how. Because he finally does directly answer it. Look at verse 14. This is where Jesus finally explains how he can be born again. How a person so bogged in sinful rebellion can ever be washed clean. Reborn to a fresh start. Given new life. Here it is. You can draw a line from nine... How can these things be? To verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, may enter the kingdom of God. This is the process, this is how it's done. Jesus takes Nicodemus back thousands of years to Numbers 21, a story he would know well. About a time when Israel had rebelled against God and fallen under his judgment. And he thus sent a plague of snakes to bite them and, and kill them with their venom. And they were dying in the desert until Moses prayed, begging for God's mercy. And God allowed him to set up a pole with a bronze snake the top of that pole representing their sin and their rebellion, as a snake would. Think of the garden. And God said that whoever looked to it, they would live. And the desperate, dying people looked. And they were healed and lived. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, He Himself, the Son of Man, is going to be lifted up. In the same way. Clearly a reference to his exaltation on the cross. Where he will bear the sins. Like that serpent. Bear the sins of the world in himself. This is how we can be born again. This is how we can have our hearts completely washed clean. By the sin bearing work of Jesus on the cross. Giving his perfect clean life for ours. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, like that serpent, to take it all, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how it happens. This is how the mysterious washing can take place. The cross. For God so loved the world a phrase that's always used as the evil world, the world that is living in rejection of him. He so loved the world that he sent his son to die, to take the venom of our sin and die in our place to wash us clean and heal us. But remember the look, the look of those dying in the desert with no hope, lifting up their heads towards that snake on the pole. That look of total desperation of a person who can do nothing to save themselves, but look to the mercy of God. Because that look parallels and defines the word believe in verse 15 and 16. Let's just read through those two verses again. This is where you can really see John 3:16 in its context. Start at verse 14 again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That's the cross. 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see the parallel? That look parallels that belief in Jesus. It's the look of faith, of desperate faith. See, the amazing thing about this text is that although it makes it clear that no one believes that every person needs a cleansed heart, a new birth, with, which can only happen through divine initiative, in the end, there is, implicit, there is this implicit challenge to believe. To look to the cross in faith. Every human being is responsible to cast their eyes to Jesus. Not in a magic way, not in some meritorious work, but in response to God's divine prompting to look in complete Desperate reliance to the cross, to the place where their heart was cleansed, and see their salvation, to receive full cleansing, receive the mercy of God, receive eternal life, and be born again. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that when we kind of travel back to the story of Nicodemus standing before Jesus, uh, we, we find ourselves, everyone faced with standing before him. I pray that, Lord, we would look to your Son. In the midst of our rebellion, we would see our sin and look to his redemption, look to his work on the cross in desperate faith, and be born again. Amen.